So one of the most famous movie scenes of all time comes from A Few Good Men, 1992. Uh, this very famous scene at the end of the movie where Jack Nicholson yells at Tom Cruise, you can't handle the truth. Y'all remember that? Even if you've never seen the movie, you probably know that line. You know, know that scene? Uh, well, I'm going to tell you why he said it. I'm going to spoil the ending. Now, if you've never seen it, you've had almost 30 years, okay? <laughs> so don't get mad at me if I spoil the ending. Jack Nicholson plays Colonel Jessup. And the reason for that explosion there at the end of the movie is that he's been caught in a lie on the witness stand where Tom Cruise, the young attorney, has uh, brought Colonel Jessup up to try to explain the inner workings of something called a Code Red. What had happened earlier in the film, Colonel Jessup had ordered the men under his command to attack one of their fellow Marines, and the Marine was killed in the attack. Then they tried to cover it up, of course. And it was very risky for the, for the attorney, Tom Cruise, to bring Nicholson up to the stand. It was a risk to his own future and career to do it, but it was the only way for him to get to the bottom of what really happened, for him to find the truth. And then when the lie is exposed, eventually Colonel Jessup volunteers the truth and incriminates himself in the process. Well, y'all, I've, I've never sat on a witness stand. My guess is it's not quite as dramatic as it is in the movies, but I know it's serious business. I mean, if you get on the witness stand, in most places still, they make you put your hand on a Bible. Because in this Bible, God says, thou shalt not bear false witness. And so they say, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. I do. And if you as a witness are caught in a lie, if you falsify witness, then you are guilty of what's called perjury and you can go to jail because you've interfered with justice. That's how important this issue is. It's no small thing to act as a a witness. We all, in the middle of John chapter 5, if you've been with us, we're walking verse by verse through the Gospel of John. We saw this last week. Jesus creates a massive controversy with the Jewish leaders of His day. Because in their minds, this is just a man. Jesus of Nazareth. A man like any one of us. But we saw that last week, Jesus makes it very clear that He is claiming to be God. Not a mere man, but God in the flesh. And Jesus, rather than backing down from that claim for fear of persecution, he doubles down. He makes it absolutely certain. Jesus is the Son of God. He says, and I've been given all authority to grant eternal life to people and to judge the world in righteousness. Jesus, the Son, is doing things that only the Father is able to do. But he says, I do whatever the Father is doing. Jesus and the Father are one. Now, you can't make statements like that if you lack credibility. Any mere man who says something like that would be considered insane or deceptive, evil, something out of the ordinary, but not a normal man, not a good teacher. And so if Jesus is going to make statements that extreme, that enormous, somebody's got to be able to validate what he's saying. It can't simply be his word against theirs. There's got to be somebody outside of Jesus who can testify and say, yes, I bear witness to him. This man is truly the Son of God. And so that's how chapter 5 concludes. Jesus is going to point to his witnesses. He's going to show the Jewish leaders 
that He is truly and authoritatively the Son of God. By pointing them to the voices who declare that to be true, that Jesus is who He says He is. And so we're going to see today in John 5, we're going to see four witnesses that Jesus gives us outside of Himself. He's going to show us a divine witness, a human witness, a miraculous witness, and a scriptural witness. Now, that's, that is, if that sounds really exciting to you, y'all, I've never preached John chapter 5, this section of it at least. The miracle at the beginning of John 5, everybody preaches that. This ending part right here is a little more dense and not quite as fun to read. But when you go through a whole gospel, when you go through a whole book, our commitment is to preach all of it and to find the, the diamonds in all of the Scripture, not in just the parts that we perhaps prefer, right? And so this is, this is a little denser this morning. I'm going to tell you up front, but it's so good. I want us to dig in and see how Jesus unfolds this for us. Why should we believe him when he says he's the Son of God? Well, look at verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30, as Jesus begins to lay this out. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now Jesus says at the beginning here, I do nothing of my own will, of my own initiative. I only do what the Father is doing. And y'all, this is important because the, the people who are opposing and persecuting Jesus, they're convinced Jesus is trying to lead people away from God. He's trying to lead the people astray. Jesus is trying to corrupt the worship of God when in fact Jesus has come to do the, the opposite. Right? He's not leading people away. He's leading people to the one true God. But Jesus has to be extra clear on this point. If I'm just a man making these claims, you shouldn't believe me. My testimony is not true if it exists in a vacuum on its own. I can't be a witness to myself. But there is another who testifies of me. And I know the testimony he gives about me is true. Jesus is speaking of the Father. This is the first witness, the divine witness. That God is the ultimate witness to the, to the divinity and power and authority of Jesus. Y'all, we see this actually not in John, oddly enough. It's referenced in John. But in the other Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and at his baptism, the heavens open and a voice comes from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The voice of God thunders and declares Jesus' identity. And this is what it means when we say there's a divine witness who testifies to Jesus, right? But Jesus doesn't leave it at that, right? That would, in a sense, be enough. Whatever God says, is, it's as good as done. God said it, right? But not everybody in this context here that Jesus is speaking with in John 5, not everybody was there. Not everybody heard God speak in that moment. And so it wouldn't be enough for Jesus to say, listen, I, the Father said so, so it's true. All right? If Jesus stopped only there, that would, I mean, that's what cult leaders do. I come from God. I speak for God. That's what false teachers do. That's what they think Jesus is. And so he doesn't leave it at only the divine witness, although that would be enough. 
He moves next to the human witness. You see it in verse 33. He says, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So we remember John the Baptist. Uh, in, in the Gospel of John, chapters 1 and 2 and 3, we see John come up a, a good bit. The great prophet, the last prophet that, that was sent to prepare the way for Jesus to get the people's hearts ready for the coming of Christ. And Jesus is quick to remind them here, y'all, at one point, y'all were big fans of John. Y'all thought John was the best thing since sliced bread. Everybody was going out to the wilderness to hear him speak. But remember what John said, and Jesus references this. When John was confronted about who he was, he said definitively, I am not the Christ. There is one coming after me, so great that I'm not even, un I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene, John points everybody away from himself, and he says, look, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sin of the world. So John's ministry, popular as it was, it was only to shine the light on someone else who was to come after him. And he points people to Jesus. Je Jesus says, you enjoyed John's ministry, but you've missed his purpose. He was pointing to me. Divine witness? Human witness. And there's a third witness. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me, that the Father has sent me. What could be greater than, than the testimony of John the Baptist? Jesus says, look at my works that the Father has given me to do. Just in the Gospel of John, we've seen them. We've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him heal and bring people back from the brink of death. Uh, for a few weeks ago from John 5, we saw a lame man paralyzed for 38 years get up and walk at the command of Jesus. Here in just a few weeks, we're going to see a multitude of miracles. Jesus is going to walk on water. He's going to take a small meal and multiply it so that thousands get to eat. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's even going to raise a dead man back to life in John chapter 11. No mere man can do these kinds of things, can perform these miracles. And Jesus is telling us, John is telling us, these are signs that are meant to point us to the reality of who this man is. They're bearing witness to Christ that he is the Son of God. And so he, Jesus even says it at a, at a certain point in this gospel. If you don't believe my words, at least believe my works. Believe what you see me do. Maybe these leaders are saying, well, we haven't heard God validate you, and we didn't really believe in John the Baptist. We thought he was a little out there. Well, Jesus says, you just saw a man walking who's been lame for 38 years. Believe that. The miraculous witness that shows you who I am. Right? It would seem at this, case, at this point that the, like the, the case is mounting for Jesus. If they're, if they're pushing back against him, persecuting him, calling him a, a blasphemer, Jesus says, look, look at all the witnesses that testify to who I am. Why wouldn't these people believe him if all of these witnesses, if all these testimonies are stacked in Jesus' favor? Well, he tells us. He tells, he tells them. 
uh, to their face in verse 37. And here's where things get really sticky again. Verse 37, the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Y'all, this is a gut punch by Jesus. Because we think about the people he's addressing right here. Jesus is speaking with the highest order of the religious leaders of his day, probably the scribes and the Pharisees that we see so often in the Gospels, the strongest uh, 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 teachers and models of, uh, of, of pure Jewish devotion that, that would have existed in that time, Jesus is speaking to these kinds of people. They're not living on the fringes of religious activity. These people are right in the center. If anybody would have known God, it would have had to have been people like this. But see, here's Jesus' point. The reason you reject me is that you don't really know God. You may be very religious, but God's Word does not dwell and abide deep in your hearts. That's your problem. Now try to imagine how insulting that would have been. Jesus is not just making claims about himself anymore. He's making claims about them. And y'all, there, there are a lot of different ways you could insult me. Don't try, okay? I can't, my ego can't handle it. But you could make fun of a lot of different things about me. You can make fun of my appearance, my dance moves, my breath, my education. Right? And, uh, you know, all of that, in time at least, would roll right off my back. Maybe not the dance moves part. I'm real sensitive about that. But y'all, if you insulted me, I'd get over it. But if you came to me and said, Kyle, I don't think you really know God. I'm not sure you could say anything more insulting than that. Because you're talking about the very foundation of my whole life. My, my reason for existing, the reason I do everything I do, is that I know, I, I know God and I want to honor God. And if you, if you came at me with that kind of insult, that would, that would be something I'm not sure I could get over. Those would be fighting words. But isn't that what Jesus is saying to these men? You don't know God. You don't have the love of God in you. You're, he's attacking the most fundamental thing about these people. So he better have a good reason for it. He better be sure. Why would he make such piercing statements like this? Well, he goes on and explains it in verse 39. Here's the accusation. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And y'all, this is the fourth witness, right? The divine witness, the human witness, the miraculous witness, and now the witness of the Scriptures. And this is one of the most important things Jesus ever said. We might gloss over it and miss it, but this is so central if you remember what Jesus just told them, he said, you don't have God's Word abiding in you. And we might wonder, how can that be? Because these people, they would have known the Bible backward and frontward. I mean, they, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, their Bible, that was Genesis through Malachi, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. But y'all, they knew that the Old Testament, like we wouldn't believe. 
They had large portions of it memorized. That was their schooling, was to study the Old Testament and especially the Torah, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They would have good portions of that memorized. And Jesus acknowledges, you search the Scriptures. They're studious when it comes to the Bible, but he says you've missed the point. In all your study, the indictment is you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. In other words, you've taken God's Word and you've turned it into your own formula for self-salvation. You think that by keeping the law or by reorganizing the laws to make them keepable, to make them easier for you to keep, that you can somehow produce your own righteousness and now God is obligated to reward you. God has to love us, has to accept us because we've been good. Because we've been serious students of the Bible. But Jesus says you've missed it in that case. Because these testify of me. He says all of the Scriptures are a witness to me. And y'all, one of these days I'll preach a whole sermon on this because it's so fascinating. How the Old Testament never once, to my knowledge, does the Old Testament use the name Jesus. And yet the entire thing is saturated with Jesus. He was there in the beginning as the Creator, we're told. All the prophecies point to Him. The law points to Him. The prophets point to Him. The Psalms point to Him. Everything ultimately is about Jesus, pointing us to our need for a Savior that God is going to send into the world. Proof positive that even if all you had was Genesis through Malachi, you would come to this conclusion, I'm a sinner in need of something greater than the law. The law cannot save me. God must save me. Not by my own works, but by His Grace, it's all pointing to me, Jesus says, but, verse 40, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. And y'all, this is what it comes down to. It's not that they were just bad at reading and they couldn't put the pieces together. It's that their hearts were cold and turned from God. They were seeking life in their own way, on their own terms, and they refused the gift of life that God had actually given. All of their religious inner workings were built upon their own salvation. I can do it. I must do it. And when God offers it for free, they say, no, thank you. Don't need it. Don't want it. How could they have gotten that so wrong? Well, again, Jesus tells them. Verse 41. I do not receive glory from men. I don't need your praise to make me who I am. But I know you, Jesus says, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Now we're, we get deeper and deeper to the roots of the issue, don't we? The problem, Jesus says, is that your lives are man-centered rather than God-centered. I know you, He says to them. I know your hearts. John has told us this multiple times already through these chapters, that Jesus knows what is in man. That Jesus knows the heart. 
And he says, because I know your heart, I know that you don't have the love of God in you. Instead, you love the glory of people. You love achievement and acclaim in the eyes of others. You practice your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. But your heart is not inclined to God. And Jesus says, if another Messiah comes along, so-called, you'll follow Him. If He comes in His own name, you'll go right after Him, as long as He tells you what you want to hear. But when the Son of God actually comes to you, face to face, in the flesh, you do not receive Him. You reject Him. Eventually, they'll send Him to the cross. Because they don't love God, and therefore they don't love the one God has sent. And then Jesus drives the final nail down in verse 45. Don't think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Um, You could almost say this is a fifth witness, Moses. Jesus is speaking, of course, of Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Moses, who God sent into Egypt to say, let my people go, and then led the people out through the Red Sea and eventually onto the promised land where he handed the reins to Joshua. Moses, right? And if you're going to put your hope in anybody, Moses would be a good one, right? But no, Jesus says you're wrong. What you believe is that by following Moses, by hitching your wagon to Moses, that your Jewish heritage somehow gets you in with God. That simply by being an Israelite, you're in. And if you study God's law, if you read the words of Moses, then all you've got to do is study and you're in. Obey and you're in. The more you obey, the more life you have, right? And that, that, y'all, that makes sense. Certainly it made sense to them. And if that's the case, if, if you can get in on the basis of who you are and what you do, well then golly, what need do you have for grace and forgiveness and mercy. No, you go on the offensive, right? I'm going to earn my way in. I don't need God to do anything for me. He's already given me the book. And Jesus says, if that's where you've put your hope, Moses, in the last day, Moses will not be your Savior. He will be your accuser. Because everything Moses did was pointing to a Savior, was pointing to Christ. The words of the law were not an end in themselves. They were pointing us to Jesus, and so Jesus says, if you actually believed Moses, you'd believe me too. All right, let's come up for air for a minute. I told you this was dense. Uh, in your Bible, if, if Jesus' words are in red, it was all red today. Jesus just, he's, it's just an extended um, monologue from Jesus here, and there's a lot in here. Maybe it would help if I told a story. I'm going to give you a little parable. It's not, this is not from the Bible. I don't honestly remember where I heard it. I feel certain I've shared it before. Don't hold that against me. But this story might help us to drive these things home. Uh, there was once a king, a very wise, just, a good king, over a large kingdom. And one day, a poor farmer from the kingdom came to the king and was granted access to him. And he had in his hands a basket of vegetables the very finest and first of his produce. And without looking up, just with his eyes to the floor, he said, O king, I give you the very best of my crops. Well, the king was so impressed with this humble gift 
that he declared that this poor farmer would now have twice his land, the plot of land next to his was now his as well. He doubled his property. He changed his life in response to this gift. Well, there was a nobleman, a much wealthier man, who was in the court of the king. He saw this happen, and the wheels began to turn in his own mind. My goodness, if the king gave a gift like that in response to vegetables, what might he give me? And so the very next day, the nobleman brings to the king a horse. And he says, oh, my king, I give to you my very finest horse. And all the king did was say, thank you. Well, the man, he couldn't hide the the disappointment on his face. And the wise king looked at this downtrodden man and he said, you know what? The poor farmer gave his vegetables to me. But you have given this horse to yourself. In other words, you were consumed only with your own glory and what you might receive. You didn't do it out of love for me, only out of love for yourself. Y'all, in in John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking very sharply with these men, with these religious leaders. Why? Because he's working to pierce through a dead heart to get to something real, to try to show them the purpose for which He's come and who He really is and who they really are. That these are people who have built their lives on their own glory in pursuit of their own ends. They have not sought the glory of the one and only God. Jesus said it. Everything they were doing was ultimately for themselves and not for God. For all their religious activities and commitments, they did not possess the love of God in their hearts. And that's why when Jesus came, in spite of all the witnesses that pointed to His glory, His divine authority, they simply would not believe Him. They would not accept someone else's righteousness in place of their own. They didn't think they needed it. And so, y'all, I want us to close today. I want us to, to consider how something like this might actually intersect with us where we are today. There's a pastor named Tim Keller who makes a great point on this, that there's more than one way to be lost and far from God. There's the most obvious and common way that if you are a lost person, if you're far from God, it may be that you've committed yourself to a life of sin, that you've rebelled against what was right and you've ignored God and you went off and you did your own thing. Now, when we see a person do that, we know, well, they're they're far from God. That's sin, of course. But there's another way to be lost. You can be far from God while also being very religious and good. You can actually appear to be very close to God and yet be far away. And that's the problem for these people in John 5 who studied their Bibles and who kept a tight rein on all the laws and the rituals and the behavior of others. But Jesus says to their shock, I know you, and the love of God is not in you. And so, y'all, we need to really lean into this. Because most of us, I know, were raised up in Bible Belt culture, just like me, a culture that basically says, I believe in God, I go to church, I try to be good. 
And that's pretty much all I need. That's pretty much all God wants from me. Am I a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. I just told you. I'm from the South. My parents were Christians. My grandmother was a Christian. I went to church. I believe, I believe, I believe in this book. But y'all, I'm here to tell you that that right there, that brand of Christianity is no better than what the men of John chapter 5 had. In fact, I, I don't have any... Uh, I take great, great confidence when I say this, even about myself. The men Jesus was speaking with in John 5 were far more religious than we are. The men in that context, they knew their Bibles better than I know mine. They spent more time at the temple or the synagogue than we spend at the church. And so if we're, if we're talking about a ladder by which we can climb our way to God, these guys, we're looking up at them if that's how it worked. But that's not how it works. Remember what Jesus says in verse 40, some of the saddest words ever uttered. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You know, eternal life is a gift we receive, not a badge we can earn. It's not something we're born into. It's not something we adopt from our parents or from our culture. You are not made right with God based on your own good works or even your best intentions. We are only made right. We are only made alive to God by faith in the one God has sent. In the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again from the grave that He might bring salvation to sinners. That's something that's been done for us. Therefore, we can't earn it. We can only receive it. And that's wonderfully good news. Y'all, I'm not aware of any place in the Bible where God says, get your act together and maybe I'll love you. If it's in there, come, come show it to me, please. Get your act together and maybe I'll accept you. But I know what Romans 5.8 says. Paul in Romans 5 says, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, when you were at your very worst and least deserving, God in His love sent His Son to the cross that you might be forgiven and healed and given life in His name. That's the expression of God's love. Not that we've earned our way up to Him, but that when we were at the very bottom, He came down to us. Y'all, all of the witnesses we've seen today, God the Father, John the Baptist, the miracles, the Scriptures, even Moses, all of them are pointing us to who Jesus really is. That we might see Him for who He really is, the Son of God. And seeing Him, Jesus says, His desire is that we might then come to Him that we have life in His name. This is a life we can't manufacture for ourselves. And y'all, in John 5, the sad reality, we'll see it again as we go through this Gospel, the harder these men worked for their own glory and salvation, the further from God they actually got. If you're convinced that you've got to be good enough for God and make your way to Him, if that's your mentality you're going to get further away, not closer. The only way to God is through the means of His grace, the gift of His Son, 
No work on our part required. Trust in his work. And y'all, that's, that's the theme of this whole book, by the way. Remember all of it, Genesis through Revelation, it all speaks to Jesus Christ. But even just the Gospel of John, the theme that runs through it, the thread all the way through from the beginning is this. And we'll just close with a quote. This is from John chapter 1. What's the purpose of all of it? What's the purpose of your life and mine? As many as received Him, Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be born of God, to be born again, to have life in His name. The people in John 5 believed, we are born of God by the will of the flesh, by what we do and who we are. And the Gospel says, no. You are born by receiving Jesus Christ. That's where life is found. And oh, that we would treasure such a free and lavish gift today. Life in His name. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the harder words of Scripture from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Protect us, Lord, from any thought that Jesus only encouraged and affirmed and spoke sweet words to us. The hard words, the the piercing words, I pray, are are where life is found for us. That He pierces through the heart of, of, of religious duty. That He pierces through our hearts that perhaps are dead to You, God. Even as we sit in a church. And that we might see that we've missed it. That that relying on something else, relying on our own good works, relying on our upbringing, relying on our church attendance or whatever else, somehow we've missed Jesus. Father, would you grant us life today to see Jesus for who He really is so that we might bear witness to Him. That we might become witnesses to Jesus. Just as you, Father, are, as John the Baptist was, the miracles, the Scriptures, so Kyle would be a witness. So Josh would be a witness. And Jennifer would be a witness to point anyone willing to listen to this divine Savior. He is everything He said He was. And we can know Him for ourselves. Father, would we have faith in Christ today, a faith that shakes us out of our pursuit of all other glories, that gets us out from from the mirror, constantly looking at ourselves and focusing on ourselves and looking instead to the glory of Jesus Christ to know Him and love Him and receive Him. Father, thank You that You've given such a gift. May we receive it with with the eyes and the open hands of faith today. In Christ's awesome name. Amen.